I, I am wearing a tie at this service, and I know that there are just two of us wearing a tie. And so let me introduce you. This is a tie. I'm just of that age in life where I, I knew I had to wear one at 11, and I just didn't think I could tie it quickly enough in between services. So I'm just going to leave it on. I can throw it over my shoulder if that would help anything, but it's there. Now, I've just got to tell you, I have loved being a part of this congregation for nearly my whole life. My dad and Bill Elliott were pastor friends, and actually the day before I was born, my dad was with Bill Elliott at Austin College at a board meeting doing various things, and he almost missed my birth, I'm told. I don't remember it, but I'm told. And I have been orbiting this church and been mentored by this church. So if I gave the name Clayton Bell, I read tons of his sermons and got to know him. I was shaped by John Tolson and by Jim Bankhead. My best friend in the world was Peter Barnes, who worked at this church for about 12 years. And I could go on and on from the Murray Gossets to the Paul Petersons to the Jay Lees to the Cameron Beatties, who's been a student, John Turner, who's been a student, Kara Letourneau right over there, who's been a student. So this place is just infected in me. And even Caroline, who's up here today, is a student of mine right now. So I'm still tinkering with teaching and glad to be here and love being absolutely shaped by this kind of place. Now, for a long time, you've been looking at this concept of being led by the Spirit. That's what your last weeks have been about. And to be led by the Spirit means that you recognize you're not at the center of your universe. Stephen Neal, the missions historian, called our conversion a Copernican revolution. Because for a long time, we're at the center of our life, and maybe God is orbiting around it like we used to think of the universe, that you are in the middle. But the Copernican Revolution said, I think it's the sun that's at the center of the universe, and you're orbiting around it. So which are you? Do you have God orbiting around you, kind of a personal concierge, kind of arranging things for you? Or... Is the Lord Jesus Christ at the center? And you're really orbiting around the Lord. Are we led by the Spirit? I want to take you to a passage in the Old Testament where it's a very complicated moment in the history of Israel. And they're being asked to be led, in this case, by the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. Listen to God's word in Joshua 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan, that is the Jordan River, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over at the end of three days. The officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall sh set out from this place and follow it. There should be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. 
the reading of God's holy word. Lord, let your spirit speak through your word to us in such a way that we get a little hint of where you're leading us today. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. It was June the 6th. 1946. It was two years to the day from the landing at Normandy, but we didn't know exactly what that was. And there was a parade in Prospect Park in Brooklyn, New York. The parade had in it 90,000 school children. It was a Thursday. And New York schools are not out by June the 6th. And so all of these children on a Thursday were given the day off of school to go to a parade at Prospect Park on the reviewing stand was the governor of New York, the mayor of Brooklyn, and one of the nine United States Supreme Court justices. Sometimes I call them the Nazgul, one of the nine, you know. So here they are, 90,000 children at a parade. They're wearing, the little girls are wearing starch pinafores and, and the little boys have on bow ties and those uncomfortable shoes we used to call Sunday shoes. The occasion was simply the 117th annual Sunday school parade. Now think about that in contrast to today. Would school children be let out of school for a Sunday school parade? Would 90,000 be there? Would 9,000 be there? Would nine be there? A Sunday school parade on a Thursday where they're all present and a United States Supreme Court justice is watching this. The phrase at the conclusion of the reading today was you're going to need to follow because you've never been this way before. Those of us who are my age and older, and there are just two of us in the room, uh, we can remember a day when there was prayer and Bible reading in the public school in the morning over a little intercom. We can remember a day in Camden, Arkansas, where I grew up along with Aaron Williams, uh, when there were no school events on a Wednesday night because Wednesday night was church night. Nothing happened on a Wednesday night. Certainly nothing happened on a Sunday morning. It wasn't until the 80s when Texas repealed the blue laws and allowed malls to be open on Sunday. Sunday mornings. Back in those days, every restaurant was Chick-fil-A and not open on Sunday. In my little town, you had to go to the hotel to get lunch on a Sunday because that was the only restaurant open. Do you realize we have never been this way before? The world is now post-Christian. It is post-Christendom. Our country is different. Now, maybe it's a little slow in Highland Park in Dallas to come to grips with this. But living 10 years in Boston and now in the Pacific Northwest, it's very evident in those places. We've never been this way before. And you know, churches are struggling 
to get a grip on how to respond. Because with all of the activities on a Sunday morning, it's pretty easy not to show up. And to have gone through something like COVID, which pulled everybody out of their pew and onto their computer, do you know a whole lot of people have not come back? Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm glad you're back. Would you say that right now? Just, I'm glad you're back. So I want you to walk through this passage with me and notice several things. First, I want you to notice that in front of the people of God is a major impediment. It's called the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan River, some of you have been to Israel. Let me see all the hands who have been to Israel. Yeah, you've been to, you know, the Jordan River is not that much now, right? You can kind of wade in it up to your knees. Presbyterians can practice what we don't really practice, and that is rebaptizing you in the river because everybody likes to do that when they go to the Jordan. Uh, and it's no big deal. But see, in 1964, a dam was built across that river that tamed it. Prior to that time, at flood stage, this was quite a river. I don't think I've got an analogy for it in Texas. The Red River just doesn't quite do it. I mean, it was big. It was powerful. And at times at flood stage, it would be a mile across. So they've been wandering 40 years in the wilderness. We're finally here. Oh, boy. And they get there and they go, whoa, look at that. How are we going to get across? There were no bridges. There were no regular boat traffic going across. This was a bummer. And for some reason, God left them at the edge of the river for three days before speaking. Do you remember anything else that was kind of a very grim three days, not knowing how this story was going to turn out? Three days. And an impediment right there for three long days. Because they had to kind of look at it and go, well, we're here, but are we going to have to wait till the middle of summer when this thing dries up a little bit? You've had impediments in your life, haven't you? Things that just caused you to stop. Maybe it was marital problems. Something got in between you that was big like a flooded river. And you just didn't know quite how to get around it. Maybe it's been a parenting issue where one of the children sort of went off in the wrong direction and you just didn't know what to do with this impediment. Maybe it was a friendship. Maybe it was a business relationship that just, well, it just got stuck and you didn't know where this was going to go. I got stuck. Back in January of 1983, I was in my last semester of seminary. And my wife, Sarah, who's here this morning, actually got very sick, had to go to the hospital in the middle of the night. We had a little seven-month-old baby. Complicated moment. Turned out she was internally bleeding in a rather uh, dramatic fashion and had to go into um, surgery in the middle of the night. She was a nurse working in a hospital in Richmond, Virginia, and she was the breadwinner of the family while I was kind of the idle student preaching in little bitty churches for about $50 a Sunday. And suddenly the doctor said, you're not going to be able to work for about eight weeks. Well, we were just 
12 weeks from graduation. I thought, wait a minute, if you can't work, what's this going to be? And I couldn't figure it out. I'd had some doubts about whether I was supposed to be a pastor. And this sort of confirmed those. I said, I guess I'm not. So this happened on a Sunday night. On Monday and on Tuesday, I didn't know what we were going to do. I added up all the numbers. And with rent and car payment and all those things, it looked to me like it was going to cost us $2,322 that we didn't have. $2,322. I worked it down to practically the penny. And it doesn't sound like a lot of money today. It was a lot of money in 1983, I can tell you that. And for somebody who didn't have any resources to call upon, it was an enormous amount of money. And so I thought, okay, I got to quit, go back to work. This deal is over. And I'll finish the story a little later. But do you see what it's like when you've got an impediment and you don't know what's in front of you? Do you know there are a lot of churches right now that don't know what to do next? Because we've got a whole doctrine of the church that's kind of up for grabs and people are going, what in the world are we doing? We've got a whole lot of people that have been uh, thrown ethical issues at us we don't exactly have answers for in clear manners for them and we've got two generations the millennials and gen z that by and large seem to think i don't need that anymore we still haven't recovered quite from covid this is complicated there's an impediment but secondly i want you to notice in this text there's a hope they're hoping for a new life on the other side because what it's being called for 40 years is the promised land. And the promised land was not so much just geography. It was a chance to be a kind of people who would be a light to the nations. They would live in a way that showed they were being redeemed from the effects of the fall and they were going to live in a whole new way. And on the other side of that river, people were going to come and say, how did you do this? Where did it come from? What do we need to know to do the kinds of things you're doing? There was a tremendous sense of hope. And, and when you face an impediment and you're living with a kind of hope of what could be, I mean, there's just all kinds of possibilities. I've had 16 students where I've taught at Gordon-Conwell Seminary from communist China. 15 of them have been arrested thrown in jail for their faith. I would be mortified. They said, not that big a deal where we live. It's just what happens when you follow Jesus and you're not at the center of your universe. But that, the church in 1949, when the communists came and the missionaries left, it looked like the worst impediment, way bigger than the Jordan River. But you know, the church just pivoted and they went underground by and large. And now the church in China is got a vibrancy and a strength most of us here don't really quite get. Or if you took what I think is, and Andrew can answer this better than I, I think the fastest growing church in the world today is in Iran. They have no advantages. They can't really meet like we're meeting in a room like this. But the church is just exploding there because they've got a hope about what God wants to do in their midst. And so you begin to go, wow, how do we get there? How do we flourish in Dallas, Texas for the next 20 years? 
The text is going to tell you, follow the ark. Follow the ark. So tell your next door person in your pew, follow the ark. They need to hear from another voice. Follow the ark. Now, just to be clear, you can see the picture. This is not Noah's ark. So let's not get confused about biblical stories. This is the Raiders of the Lost Ark ark of Harrison Ford. And so this was a box, by and large, that contained several important things. The Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, the presence of the Lord was seen to reside on that. And so anytime they were following the ark, it felt like they were following the Lord. For Christians today, that's follow the Holy Spirit. Follow where the Spirit is leading. And that means you've got to first listen to what the Spirit might be saying. That's the Spirit speaks through the Word, speaks through other believers, speaks through circumstances. So to follow, you've got to listen. And some of us need some real help in learning how to be still long enough to listen and to get out of the orbit of Lord of our own life and into a different orbit. But sure enough, these folks were called to listen and just follow that art. Wherever that art goes, that's where we want you to go. And so sure enough, with the waters still raging, they walked that ark right into the middle of the river. And the miracle that we read in the next chapter, and I can't explain how it happened, the waters backed up. And they were able to walk through on dry land. It probably reminded some of them of stories their parents and grandparents had told about the parting of the Red Sea. But I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I'd want to be the first one to follow the ark into that river. I mean, the Spokane River, where I live now, it is a massive thing in the month of April. And you just go, well, I'm not walking in that. But they had to walk right into it in obedience. And that's your call. Where are you going to take a step to follow the Lord into the mission God has called you into? So I had a bad Sunday night when Sarah went to the hospital. I had a really bad Monday and Tuesday. On Wednesday, I went to my mailbox. And when I went to my mailbox, there was a letter from my childhood best friend named Dale Boaz. He lives still in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And I, oh, I wasn't used to getting a letter from him. He's not a letter writer. And, and so I opened the envelope and inside was a little cryptic note that said, this is for you. And it was a check made out to me. Guess what the amount was? $2,322. And the check was written on Saturday, the day before Sarah went to the hospital. So I thought, how did he know? I mean, how could he have known? What in the world? So I called him on the phone and I said, Dale, thank you for this amazing check. Tell me about the amount. How did you get to this amount? Because that's a very critical amount in my life. And he said, oh, it was just kind of this funny thing where I, I wanted to sell my car, put a sign in the car for sale, wouldn't sell, wouldn't sell, wouldn't sell. Finally, I prayed in between Christmas and New Year's, Lord, if you would just 
help me get rid of this car, I'll give a third of what I get to some kind of ministry. That's called making a deal with God. <laughs> and so sure enough, on New Year's Eve, a drunk driver plowed into the car, parked on the street. And when the insurance company sent him his check, it was for $6,966. Divided by three is $23.22. That allowed me to finish seminary and a very different story unfolded because I had to be led by a spirit in a way I didn't know how to go. But that's because, as the final point of this text says, I'm going to take you away you've never been before. I'm going to take you on a journey where you've never been before. And you know, the church has had some amazing moments. I told you about one in China where they pivoted. You know, in the 1720s in England, it was a despairing time. Every third house had a license to sell gin. It was the Industrial Revolution. People were very despairing. Children were having to work at long hours. And, and John Wesley had a different way of going. It was a way they had never gone before. And he took the church outside the buildings, into the fields, near the coal mines, near industrial sites, and the church exploded in what we now call the first great awakening. My wife got to pastor a church in New England where the great evangelist of that same era, friend of John Wesley's named George Whitfield, is buried directly under the pulpit, which is kind of awesome as you're preaching. And you want to go, you doing okay down there? Uh, and you have this sense he's turning over in his grave again or something. But nevertheless, he had a new way of doing it and drew people to God in a way they had never been before. What is that saying about you and your life and this time? You see, God is the same God that was working with Joshua, that is working with you today, that has been here for a long time and has got a word for you. What is it saying about your individual life? Is God taking you a place you've never been before? Are you willing to go if he leads you there? That's what being led by the Spirit's about. And this whole church, stay open to where God wants to lead you. Listen carefully and go when the Spirit says, go. So I close with this little picture of this dog that's on this front porch. And a pastor was visiting this family. It's in West Virginia. And they were rocking on those chairs on the porch. And the dog was whining. It was kind of hard to have a serious pastoral conversation with this whining, but the pastor kept trying. But and it just wouldn't stop. And finally, the pastor said, Excuse me, what, what is wrong with your dog? The man said, Oh, not that much. He's just lying on a nail. And it hurts him enough to whine, but not enough to move. 
So my prayer for you in this room and you in Elliot Hall is that maybe God will move you by his spirit. And when he says go, you'll go. And when he says go reach your neighbor, you'll go reach that neighbor. Go talk to them. And when it's time to take a step, you'll take that step. You can always say no. But you see, the God, is, it's the same God who is at work there that's at work right now with you. Are you ready to respond? Let's pray. Lord, do your work in us by your Holy Spirit so that we recognize that you're still speaking and the same God today. Amen.